morning, and welcome. My name is John, uh, one of the pastors here. Glad to have you all worshiping with us on a beautiful Sunday morning. And invite you to open up uh, your scriptures to our passage today. We're looking at Colossians 3, 15 to 17. So Colossians 3, 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take your living word and press it into our hearts. Uh, Father, you know the words that we need. You know the things that have distracted us and weighed us down. You know the sins that we've held on to this week. And we pray, Lord, that your word would get to work in chipping away our hearts and molding and shaping and growing and healing them to look more and more like Jesus. We pray that his rule would be manifest in our hearts today. We pray this in his name. Amen. When you go to boot camp, you very quickly discover there is a new boss in town, or uh, more appropriately, a new master. And he is called the drill instructor. <laughs> and the first week of boot camp is all about discovering how this new master will control every aspect of your life. So for instance, I remember that first night that we were able to sleep there. Uh, we all lined up in lines behind each sink in the head or the bathroom. And we learned that our bedtime routines would look vastly different from the ones we'd enjoyed just a few days prior. For instance, as we got in front of the sink, the drill instructor uh, would tell us to everyone who's in the front row, to put shaving cream on the right side of your face, at which point he would then start counting down. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. And when he gets to zero, we all would yell, freeze, recruit, freeze. And everyone had to stop moving, and the drill instructor would walk around and inspect to make sure that we put shaving cream on the left side and only the left side of our face. And inevitably, uh, some people got shaving cream elsewhere, on their nose or forehead, or maybe even their hair, which results in being swarmed by the drill instructors, getting yelled at and told how worthless you are, that you can't even follow simple instructions, and maybe you'll even be asked to shave those areas where you added the extra shaving cream. Now, some people also, in the rush of it all, in the stress, would confuse their left and right. And so it was very obvious because in a line of everyone with shaving cream just on the you know, left side of their face, there's one guy who's got it on the right side of his face. And again, prepare for more yelling uh, and put downs and being told to fix it uh, while everyone looks on and the drill instructor is counting down uh, and watching you. You have a new master. Now, the thing is, oh, let me get my, missed a page there. You have a new master in life. And this process was called by the numbers. Right? And that it would be how you do everything, at least for the first couple weeks, from brushing your teeth to taking a shower to getting dressed. It was done under the watch and the countdown of the drill instructor. 
you have a demanding master, one who will literally control your life for 24 hours a day, every day for the next 13 weeks of your life. The drill instructor rules your heart. He will be one of the greatest motivating factors in your life for the next three some months. Now, let me ask you this. What rules you? What controls you? What motivates your heart? Because every one of you is controlled by something. Maybe it's not as obvious or in your face as a drill instructor, but I doubt it's any less demanding. Is it perhaps what others think of you? Is always like this voice in the back of your head asking those questions. What does this person think? What does that person think? What did that person mean? Maybe it's trying to please your parents. You feel like you can never live up to their standards. Maybe it's trying to prove something to yourself about what you're worth or capable of. Maybe it's a few words that were spoken to you even decades ago, and yet you can never go more than a few days without those words coming back to remind you of something. Maybe it's some traumatic event that happened to you, and yet it still controls every aspect of your life. What rules you? And in our passage, we're going through the book of Colossians in this series called Jesus is Enough. And one of the things that we see here is that Jesus is enough to rule us. He should control every aspect of our life. But he's not a demanding ruler. He's not like a drill instructor. His rule in your heart actually leads to peace and joy, different than any other sort of ruler. And so what, the question I want you to ask yourself this morning and really ponder the rest of this day is what rules your heart? What rules your heart? And we're going to see three things that Christ's rule gives us, peace, gratitude, and thanksgiving. So first, peace. Now, chapter 3 of Colossians, which we've been in for several weeks, it really marks this transition in the book from all of those glorious truths in chapters 1 and 2 that Paul has shown, has shown us, this is what you have in Christ. Your life is connected with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You live with Christ. Your life is now hid with Christ. And then in the second half of the book, he's making that transition to here is what practical difference that makes in your life. If Christ has been plugged into your heart, it should change the output of your life. And so he then talked about earlier in the chapter how, you know, we naturally have all these old stinky clothes that we've been wearing that we need to take off if we're Christians, lust, greed, slander, and so on. And then he says, but Christ has laid out this beautiful new wardrobe for you that you're to put on, a wardrobe of compassion and humility and kindness and so on. And now we're, he's wrapping up this section by showing us when you put on that wardrobe of Christ, when Christ rules your heart and your life, this is what it will look like. And Paul starts off with this one thing that we will have, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now notice how the word let occurs twice in our passage. It's here and then at the beginning of verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell. And it's an interesting contrast between that very earlier active language that Paul uses, like put to death in verse 5, or rid yourselves, verse 8. That is to, but to let is something more of a 
passive act. It's to give yourself to a process that has already been set in motion. You, if you're counseling a friend and tell them, you know, you just need to let this happen. Well, what do you mean? This process is occurring that you need to stop fighting against and let it continue its course. So this should actually be encouraging for us as Christians. Given that what Paul says, when you become a believer, it is something so much more glorious than you imagine. You are connected to the divine, and you're plugged into God. And and so he's saying, now that you've been plugged into God, let the power of God make its way through every corner of your heart and your life. Let him do his work in you so that his power works its way from the inside out to your fingernails to affect every corner of your life. Don't fight his power that is in you. Don't fight his control over your heart. At the same time, though, that Paul has to tell us to let this occur, to have the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, means that we are not allowing that to happen because we are keeping other things in charge of our hearts. We're letting other things rule our hearts. Now, the thing is here, when Paul uses this word rule, this is the only place that that Greek word translated as rule in our English Bibles is used in the Bible, only instance of this word. Now, elsewhere, that same Greek word is used to refer to something like an empire, an empire who would uh, preside over sports games or something like a referee. It could also be translated to judge or to decide or control. So Paul is saying, what is controlling your heart? What is calling the shots in your life? And then additionally, when he talks about let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, he has a different idea of heart than we do, where we tend to think of the heart as your emotions or feelings. But Paul is drawing more from the Old Testament idea that the heart is, uh, as one commentator noted, the place, it's the center of one's personality. It's the source of your desires, your emotions, your thoughts, your affections. And so Paul is saying, let the peace of Christ be like the umpire for your life, calling the shots, controlling everything, saying what is in and what is out. Now, you may have never been to boot camp, but something is still calling the shots in your life. And what is it? What is ruling your life? What is controlling your thoughts? What do you find yourself always daydreaming about? What are those goals that you're sacrificing so many other things in order for you to achieve? What is ruling your heart? What do you want more than anything else right now? What if, as, if it is, is threatened to be taken away, you get unduly angry or anxious about? What do you spend a lot of time thinking about throughout the week? What do you spend a lot of time pursuing or making plans to pursue? What do you spend a lot of time avoiding in your life? Something is ruling your heart. Something is calling the shots in your life for what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, for how you're going to react to this situation and that situation. And that thing that is ruling your heart is a lot like a drill instructor, right? Because what is the result of that rule? Does it bring you peace? Does it bring you contentment? Does it bring you joy? Or does it more feel like a little voice in the back of your head ready to jump on you every time you screw up, every time things don't go your way? Something that keeps you from resting and enjoying and finding contentment in life. 
You know, maybe you find it for a moment when you get that thing you've been looking for, right? When you get that job or promotion or you win some sort of prize. But the joy that that thing gives lasts about as long as cotton candy in your mouth. And more often than not, the thing that's ruling your heart leaves you in a perpetual state of stress, emptiness, discontent, anger, and fear. You know, there's been a lot of talk about tyrants lately, and every one of us, we're rightly afraid of having tyrants rule over us. And yet, how many of us have the tyrants of money or success or acceptance ruling in your heart right now? Do you see them as that? What is a tyrant? It is a cruel and oppressive ruler. Are not those things that are controlling your heart right now cruel and oppressive? Because they're always telling you, you need more, you aren't enough, you need this, you need that. It has whatever is ruling your heart ever told you, hey, John, that's enough, you've made it, take a break, enjoy life for a little while. Or is it always knocking on the door saying, nope, there's something more, there's something next. And that is what is so beautiful about the rule that we have with Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Rabbis uh, commenting on similar Old Testament texts point out the difference between the master and the guest of a house, and they said, he who dwells in a house is the master of a house, not just a passing guest. Is Jesus a passing guest in your house or in your heart, or is he the master of your heart? And what is the mark of Jesus being the master of your heart? It is peace. What is the mark of a community where Jesus truly rules? It's a community where there is peace amongst everyone, right? Where divisions do not break us apart and things do not separate us, but we work through our differences, we love each other, and we have peace. And we cannot miss the corporate or group nature of this. Many of you who have young kids, or when you did have young kids, you treasured those moments in the morning before the kids wake up. You're on the couch, and you've got a hot cup of coffee, and not a creature is stirring, not even a mouse, and you are just enjoying the peace and calm of it all. It is peaceful. Those moments are sweet. But in the back of your mind, you're counting down the minutes until one of the kids gets up Right? And you've got to get them dressed, get them redressed, negotiate breakfast, and get them ready for school. Right? And it feels like chaos. But notice the peace that Paul is talking about here. It isn't a peace that you have just because all the kids haven't woken up yet. It's a peace that dwells in the midst of a community. Christ offers you a peace that isn't dependent on all the kids sleeping in that day or all the stressors being out of your life, but a peace that can rule in your heart in the middle of the chaos of a back-to-school routine. And that is the type of peace that we need. That's what real peace is, not a fragile peace, a thick peace. You know, so much of the peace that, that our world offers and people talk about today is really just a peace uh, by getting rid of 
people that you don't like in your life, removing toxic things from your life, removing situations or stressors from your life, and that's how you get peace. Just get rid of everything else. But Christian peace is so much stronger. It is so much deeper, so much more valuable. It is a peace that can rule in your heart even when you're surrounded by the chaos of the world and the most traumatic of situations that you might find. So are you letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Or are you trying to find peace by some other means? I think this is what Jesus gets at when he says back in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you peace as the world gives. What is he talking about? A peace that's just about getting rid of the sources of stress in your life. No, he says, I offer a better peace. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus offers his people a peace that can bubble up even in times of stress and trauma. And where does that peace come from? Well, Jesus tells us in the previous verse, John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit that you have when you become a Christian takes his Home, makes his home in your heart and connects you to the rule and the reign and the power of Christ so that you can have peace even amidst the storms in your life. And how does that work? Why? Because the Holy Spirit connects you to a power that is greater than any other power, a strength stronger than any storm, someone who can keep you safe, someone who can hold your life even when cliffs fall down around you. But in the middle of the storm, where God is, he holds you tight, and nothing can touch you, and you can find peace there. So what's the second thing we have when Christ rules in our hearts? Gratitude. Verse 16 maybe sounds like a separate idea. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. This is actually getting at the same thing in the previous verse, though, but just from a different angle. Again, if we take Jesus' words back in John 14, where he connects the idea of the Holy Spirit being our comforter, Jesus' teaching or message, and the peace of Christ that he gives, we see all these things are interrelated. The Spirit, Jesus' message, and peace. To have the message of Christ dwell in us is another way of stating that you have the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. Now, there's so much in this verse, I'm just going to focus on a couple key things. First, we see that part of Jesus' ruling in our hearts means there's an essential communal aspect to Christianity. We could put it very bluntly this way. It's hard to call yourself a Christian if you're not singing with other Christians, if you're not gathering together with other Christians and singing together, worshiping together. This is why gathering together physically for worship is so key to the Christian life. Like, what other places are you singing with other Christians? Singing is a great way to build camaraderie. Our, our, our world knows this. Why do we sing anthems or chants during sports games? Singing brings us together. We could say that a church that sings together sticks together. And notice more specifically, though, singing is one of the ways you help teach other Christians. Maybe you don't feel like you're qualified to teach. I don't know a whole lot. Guess what? Your singing 
is a way in which you encourage other believers in the faith. And before, this was all the more important back uh, before mass printing and widespread literacy, songs were one of the ways that people were taught things. But it still applies today. Anyone ever seen Daniel Tiger, right? There is a song for every lesson in that show, and they all get stuck in your head. Your singing is a way that helps others be reminded of the message of Christ. Your singing helps the people behind you and to your left and right in front of you grow in Christ. But it's more than just the content, because then Paul says to sing to God with gratitude in your heart. This means one of the key reasons you should sing loudly in church, it's not because of how good of a singer you are, but because of how thankful you are to God for what he has done for you. Singing is the natural outcome of a heart that is full of joy. So are you singing when we gather together? Why aren't you singing louder when we gather. And realize that your singing is actually a source of encouragement to the people around you. You know, so often people say, well, you know, no, actually people are thankful that I don't sing very loud, right? They haven't heard my voice. I, I disagree. The most encouraging thing about singing isn't singing that is technically proficient. It's singing that comes from the heart. It, and here's how I know it. What do we do when one of our kids in the worship services is belting out a song, you know, louder than everybody else, or singing the doxology, right, above every other voice, and they maybe are two beats off of everyone else, right, and they're singing a couple seconds after the rest of us? Right? Do we get upset? Do we say, oh, I wish they would sing better? No, what do you do? We smile, because that singing is an expression of the joy in that child's heart. And would, if only all of us would have that same joy and not be afraid to show it as we sing and worship together. Even if, you have a bad, if you're having a bad day, but you hear that child's voice singing, what happens? It brings a smile to your face. And you know what? When I hear you guys singing, that's one of the greatest sources of joy I have as your pastor is hearing your voices, not because of how good anybody is, but because it reflects a heart that is full of joy. And I'd rather have a worship service full of people singing like that than a perfectly directed choir. So let's sing with gratitude. Because every week there are people that come here who've had a tough week. There are people who come into worship who don't have, can't think of a reason to be thankful. But them hearing your voice and your voice joining with our voices can sing joy back into their life and remind them of the unchanging truths of God. Your presence matters here. Your voice matters here. It's one of the ways that you can show love to the people in the church you can help sing them back to life after a hard week or a hard season. And the third thing that Christ's rule gives us is thanksgiving. Lastly, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now here, Paul gives us a fairly broad umbrella statement. Whatever you do, 
whether it's the words you speak or the things that you do, do these things for Jesus. When you go to boot camp, you very quickly learn everything you do, you're doing for the you know, pleasure of the drill instructor, to make him happy, to do it as he said, it is according to his instructions. Whatever you do, whether it's shaving or showering or shining your shoes, you're doing it for him. And it's similar. It's actually more so with Christ. Everything you do, right? Because the drill instructor's reign eventually ends. Christ's never does. Whatever you do from this day to the end of your life, you do it for Jesus. Do you realize that there is not a single aspect of your life that is not under Christ's influence and should not be done and should be done for him? From what you wear to what you eat to how you care for your body, to what work you do, to what you do with your free time, to how you spend your money. All of it should be essentially an act of worship and thanksgiving for God. Your life is a worship service. Everything you do is to show praise and thanksgiving to Him. And why is that? Well, for one reason, it's because everything you do, you can only do because of His grace. Behind every good thing you have is a God that has graciously given you those things or given you the ability to get those things. The talents that you have that have got you to where you are, who gave you those talents? You know, the the breaks or the so-called luck that you've had in life, who set up the conditions for that? The health that you've had to be able to hold a job or not have, you know, never-ending medical bills, who has given you that health? Where you were born and the ability to live in this country where you can pursue economic advancement, who has given that to you? Behind everything that you have is the undeserved grace of God who has given these things to you and now is asking you to take those things and turn them into a beautiful tapestry of praise to Him. And that should lead to thanksgiving, not pride, thanksgiving. It should lead to a gratitude for everything that you have, not an obsession for getting more of it. It should lead to greater love for God because you see how much He has loved you even before you had any thought about Him. You cannot wall a single part of your life off from the rule and reign of Christ because He is over it all. Now, for some of us, we don't have that peace of Christ because Christ is more like a house guest in our life than the owner of our hearts. For others of us, though, we don't have that peace of Christ because we let Christ rule in certain parts of our life. Like, well, you know, I go to church, I pray, read my Bible, but then there are other parts of your life that you've tried to wall off to keep Christ from from having control over, from being the master of. What parts in your own life do you resist Christ's rule? What areas in your life are you trying to do things your way instead of for God's glory? What things are you not doing in the name of Christ? Where are you pursuing your own agenda, your own pleasure, your own goals? Thinking, well, I still believe in Jesus, so I can go do this stuff. Is it any surprise that you don't have peace in your life? Because you're a person divided person with many bosses, a heart pulled in all kinds of directions in terms of what it wants. So what is ruling your heart? What will rule your heart this week? 
Will it be another drill instructor? One whose rule doesn't bring peace and gratitude, but condemnation for how you've never done enough, a sense of never being enough, never having enough, always having something else to do? Or will you allow a gracious redeemer to rule in your heart? Has what is ruling in your heart ever died for you? Or is it constantly demanding that you give more to it? Has it ever given its life to you? Or is it always asking for you to sacrifice more for it? Has it ever bled for you? Has it ever promised to let you go no matter how hard it gets, no matter how hard it hurts? There is only one ruler who has done all of those things. And then it's Jesus who loves you and will not let you go. I've been reading Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of the Bible, The Message, uh, lately just for my own edification. And last, this last week I read from 1 Peter 2. And starting in verse 21, it says, This is the kind of life you've been invited into, the kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so that you would know it could be done and, all, and know how to do it step by step. He never did one thing wrong. He never once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book, and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were lost sheep with no idea who you were or where you were going. Now you're named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. That's the type of gracious redeemer we have. Do you have a master? Do you have a ruler who took all your sins and put them on himself? Do you have a ruler who took everything that is wrong about you and all your ugliness and all your failures and took them to the grave where he suffered with them? Do you have a ruler who's given you a name and now promises to keep you for good and to shepherd your souls from this day forward? Will you let that gracious redeemer rule in every corner of your heart? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us see how good a redeemer we have. Lord, so many of us are afraid of fully letting Jesus reign in our lives. We're afraid of the things we might have to give up. We're afraid that we'll miss out on so many things in life. And it shows how little we trust Jesus, how little we believe he really has our own good in mind, and how much we think we know better. But Lord, I pray that you would break every one of us to show us how screwed up our own thinking is, to show us that we've been addicted to ourselves and trying to pursue our own agendas, and all that's done is led us into more darkness and depression and discouragement. And Father, take those yokes of oppression off us and show us the beauty of Jesus who is there to hold us tight. And we pray this in his name. Amen.